Today at Reader's Corner, Mark Fullman, author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. The Washington Post reported recently that there have been over 300 mass shootings in America in 2022. Over 700 such incidents in 2021. When you define a mass shooting as a shooter killing four or more people. The failure to prevent mass shootings has never been more costly, and the prospects for stopping them never more promising. In his new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, award-winning journalist Mark Fullman chronicles the decades-long search for identifiable profiles of mass shooters and bring readers inside a groundbreaking method for preventing devastating attacks. Mark Fullman is the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. Since 2012, when he created a first-of-its-kind public database of mass shootings, his various investigations into gun violence have been honored with numerous awards. His writing and commentary have been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and many other media outlets. Mark Fullman, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, Mark, I came away from reading your book absolutely convinced that in places across America, there are professionals uh, who are preventing mass shootings in in many jurisdictions because of expert and and early intervention. Um, Just to prove my case, and this is rather an unusual place to start uh, this discussion of your book, I guess, but could you begin sharing with us the encounter that one of the professionals uh, you cover in the book, John Van Driel, had with a surprise moment with a police officer. Uh, it's a tiny fraction of your book, but I think it, it tells us what good can come from this new behavior threat assessment that we'll talk about in a minute. Are you tracking sure. where, what I'm talking about here when it comes to that police officer who tracked down Van Driel? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's it's a great story, actually, that I was able to tell in the book. So just to give a bit of context, John Van Driel is a, a threat assessment leader uh, in the city of Salem, Oregon, and uh, founded one of the first um, comprehensive behavioral threat assessment programs in a school system uh, after Columbine in, in 1999. And so uh, through the years of building the program and doing the work, one of the uh, stories that Andriel told me in my interviews with him was that he, one time after a, a meeting on school safety, he uh, was approached by a police officer that he knew in the local community, not well, but someone he, he had worked with a little bit over the years uh, who approached him and, and, and said to, to John, I want to thank you. And, and John didn't really know what he was talking about. And he, he reached out to hug him, which, you know, John sort of jokes about as, as, uh, you know, <laughs> being unusual yeah. with his experience with police officers. And the reason that he wanted to thank John Bandrio was because he said, I want to thank you for saving my son's life. Um, and it turned out that his son had been the subject of a threat assessment case in, in the Salem Kaiser program years prior. And what's interesting about the story is that it wasn't a particularly memorable case uh, for Vandriel in the sense that it wasn't particularly dramatic. It wasn't one of these cases where a disturbed kid was on the brink of carrying out a school shooting, uh, where it was obvious that violence was was imminent. Um, it was more of an early intervention case. And, and that was notable to Vandriel. And he's talked about this in training discussions 
because it really represents the heart of the work, which is to try to intervene in cases as early as possible when there are signs of violent thinking and potential planning for violence, but where an individual hasn't yet gone farther down what the field calls the pathway to violence, which is the process of escalation that leads toward a school shooting or mass shooting attack. Mm -hmm. Well, let's use the Salem, Oregon uh, case as uh, as a template here uh, for your describing the behavioral threat assessment, uh, what's involved, who's at the table, what kind of a team is assembled to make this work. So behavioral threat assessment is a a local community-based model for uh, violence prevention. And it brings together expertise that is multidisciplinary, uh, professionals in mental health, in law enforcement, in education, in workplace management, in, in a local community, in social services, sometimes in religious institutions. In essence, this is leaders in a community working together using their collective expertise to evaluate specific cases of concern that come to the team's attention. Uh, Most cases, most threat cases begin when an ordinary person sounds the alarm and reaches out for help because someone is creating anxiety or fear through their behavior or circumstances. And so when that comes to the attention of a team, what they do is quickly gather as much information as possible about the individual Um, talking to people around them, uh, looking at any uh, lawfully available records, and then also talking to the case subject themselves to try to get a better understanding of what the situation is and what the level of danger may be, um, whether or not that person may be planning violence, and then coming up with a plan to intervene, ideally as constructively as possible. Um, In many cases, this is about getting the person the help that they need to try to steer them away from that pathway to violence and onto a better path. And that's that's the essence of the work. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the warning behaviors that this professional team would be looking at when they, they know all of a sudden we've got to get this kid in a room and we need to talk to him about what's going on here? Yeah, so there's there's really a wide range of behaviors and circumstances that come up in threat cases, um, and it's the patterns of those behaviors and circumstances that the teams have learned to use over the years and in developing the behavioral science that underlies this method of work. Um, in trigger points, I break this down to eight different kind of broad areas of behavioral warning signs. Uh, I think probably the most Um, obvious or known to the general public is what I call threatening communications. In many mass shooting cases and in threat cases where prevention work has been successful, the individual, uh, the perpetrator or person of concern is signaling what their intentions are uh, through comments to people around them um, through other forms of personal expression, writing, uh, and of course, you know, journals, uh, things like that. But of course, also social media posts now in in our digital age. Um, Increasingly, this has become a a factor online. So that's one area where uh, threat assessment teams will look in a a case where they're concerned about someone. Um, Other forms of, of warning signs include what's called personal deterioration. When a person is seems to be spiraling into crisis, um, this can be in an employment context, it can be in a school context, it can be in a home with a domestic situation. Uh, signs that a person is, is in crisis, that they are not doing well, that there's a lack of resiliency. Often there are signs of 
of depression or suicidality. It's a very important warning factor in cases. Uh, one of the early findings in, in my research on, on mass shooters is the discovery that, that the majority are suicidal and commit suicide in the act of, of an attack. Um, Beyond that, there are, are other factors as well. Uh, planning, of course, uh, planning behaviors, preparation, acquiring weapons, conducting surveillance of a site that a person is targeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's really a whole range of factors that a team will take into account in gathering information and trying to evaluate the level of danger in any given case. And each case is considered unique because these combine in different ways. But there are many recognizable warning signs in mass shooting cases, in all of them. And this is one of the big myths that we have about this problem, that these kind of come out of nowhere. Um, That's been a popular narrative around mass shootings in the media and in politics for many years. But the idea that you can't see these coming is wrong. In all of these cases, there are sets of warning signs that lead up to the attacks. And and I think you say that really this particular work that uh, is being done now in school districts, for example, is preventive rather than predictive. Help us understand the difference there. That's right. And so this relates to another core myth about the problem of mass shootings, the, the notion that there's some kind of predictive profile out there of who a mass shooter is. Uh, but experts who who work in this field and, and in other related fields have, have sought for a long time to try to find a predictive character profile of a person who is a mass shooter. And we have kind of stereotypical ideas about who a mass shooter is. But the reality is that they come in many different forms and from many different backgrounds. And the things that they have in common are so broad based that they have no predictive value. Uh, the most obvious one being gender. Uh, most mass shooters, the overwhelming majority, are male. But that tells you nothing, of course, in terms of who might actually commit an act like this that is relatively very rare. It's it's a difficult problem in that sense because we have seen an increase in mass shootings over the past decade plus in the United States. And the impact is is very big from from these events. Mm -hmm. And yet it's still an exceedingly rare event um, in terms of the overall picture of gun violence and the um, tiny fraction of the population that will actually commit an attack like this. Mm -hmm. So there is no predictive profile. And as a result of that, what the field of threat assessment has done over the past three and a half, four decades now is to focus on prevention by focusing on the process that leads up to these attacks. It's really, if there's any kind of profile, it's a profile of the behavioral process itself. Because as I said earlier, there are circumstances and behaviors that combine in patterns that are recognizable, uh, that can help experts identify a potential attack that's forming and step in to intervene before it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because of the media focus on shootings like uh, Uvalde and Columbine, uh, it's obvious that most of us seem to be focused on school shootings. But I, I noticed when you were talking about personal deterioration uh, as one of the warning behaviors, you mentioned work. And, I, and it just occurred to me, I, I don't know, maybe you can help us here, but do we have as much emphasis in workplace America on this problem as we do in schools just because they're kids and there are kids? And, of course, that's good, but – are we doing enough across the board, I guess, is the question. 
Well, I think you raise an important point because um, the the nature of this kind of attack is by no means limited to uh, schools and uh, workplace violence is a very big issue. Many mass shootings have taken place in a workplace setting. And in fact, historically, the field of threat assessment was was focused on workplace violence prior to school shootings in, in the 1980s uh. and 90s as the work was being developed. That really was the prime focus. It was the era that was known as going postal. As you may recall, there right. were a series of uh, shootings at post offices. And there's been a very broad-based um, history of workplace violence of this nature as well. So it was only after Columbine that the field of threat assessment really began to focus more intensively on research that spoke to how to prevent attacks in schools. But the issue of workplace violence is, I think, just as important in mm. in terms of this problem. Right. You're listening to Mark Fullman. He's the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. I'd like to talk about a particular case. Uh, and I must say that there are so many people that you cover in your book who are making a difference uh, as far as this behavioral threat assessment is concerned, uh, improving our ability to stop these mass shootings. Um, I was particularly impressed with you might say, an outcome of the Virginia Tech shooting. I think in that case, 28 students and faculty were were killed. Um, I remember it well. But the fact is, I, I really don't remember all of the shootings you document here in your book. And I think uh, that happens to those of us who move on. And I just want to put a plug in here for your book. I think one of the other great assets of your book is reminding us, and even though some of this is difficult, uh, reading about what happens to people, it's absolutely critical if we're going to do anything about it. And when it comes to doing something about it, I'd like you to talk about Christina Anderson, what happened to her, and what she made of it. Yeah, uh, Christina Anderson's story is, is quite remarkable and inspiring in some ways as, as traumatic and, and dramatic as it is. She was one of the students who was shot in the Virginia Tech mass shooting in 2007. Uh, she was in classroom 211 in Norris Hall where the shooter struck and where 11 of her classmates were killed and, and their teacher. Uh, Christina was shot three times and very seriously wounded, um, was rescued in, in the course of events there with the attack and inter the ensuing response from law enforcement. Um, she survived and not only made a remarkable recovery, went back to, to the university and finished her degree, she became very interested in the recovery process, in uh, helping other survivors, and in thinking and learning more about what could be done about this problem. And she also became involved with the field of behavioral threat assessment as she started to tell her story publicly to leaders in local communities in, in mental health and education and law enforcement, in the business community. Uh, she saw the impact that her story really had as a survivor. Um, and it's a very painful story, what happened to her. Uh, but it's also quite inspiring and extraordinary in that she was able to see a way that she could use her story to compel people to pay attention to issues of preparation, of cultural awareness, of response and recovery in the event of a disaster, and of prevention work. And she ended up partnering with a threat assessment expert based in Virginia to do trainings, 
Um, I had the opportunity to get to know her as I was working on the book and to see her teach um, in many different settings. And um, eventually she and I uh, went and did some additional archival research in Virginia on the Virginia Tech case, which was really an extraordinary experience. And I tell that story in the book, watching her dig into this deep material that really was unknown to the public about what had happened at her university uh, and how it was handled and trying to understand better what led to that attack, uh, the warning signs, the many missed warning signs and the perpetrator of that terrible massacre. Uh, here she was digging into this material with me side by side in, in the archives of the Library of Virginia to try to understand even better what had happened. Just an incredible story, I think, in terms of how we can respond as a society to try to understand this problem better in order to prevent it. In 2018, as you report in your book, a major new analysis comes out of 63 gun rampages spanning more than a decade. It was published by the FBI. And without repeating yourself, because you already talked about some of the warning behaviors, but what what did we learn just fairly recently? And, and the one that comes to my mind, because I want to I talk uh, about the role that, that individuals play in reporting incidents uh, when they see something wrong with a, a person. Uh, I think you, you said in your book that law enforcement notified, was notified in fewer than half the cases, even though there was at least one person in the proximity of a shooter who had noticed something strange, bizarre, uh, concerning behavior, as you call it. Please tell us about that that study. Sure. So, uh, yeah, that research that came out in 2018 from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, I think, advanced the understanding of mass shootings in, in a couple of important ways. And I'll preface this by saying also that in the book, I also tell the story of the BAU and how it evolved and its role yes. in this field, uh, because I think that's also quite fascinating. Uh, the general public knows about this unit of the FBI uh, historically more through what it's famous for with hunting serial killers and, and the kind of famous profiling mm -hmm. of serial killers that has found its way into all kinds of pop cultural materials, uh, Hollywood movies and, and so on. Um, the work of the BAU threat assessment experts is is uh, sort of a, an evolution of that um, in using the research and profiling techniques to apply now to this prevention work, uh, which is somewhat extraordinary in my view. When I first started learning about it, that, you know, here you have this team at the FBI that is trying to do prevention. This is a an agency that uh, the, the Bureau is supposed to prosecute crime, not prevent it. But you have these experts doing some of this leading work there. And so this study of mass shooters that they did, uh, or what they called active shooters, uh, the 63 cases, what they found by diving very deep into these cases and, and with access to, to case material and, and to records that I think are, are unparalleled in some ways, um, they were able to learn more about the nature of these attacks. And I think they really brought some additional important context to the role of mental health. Uh, which is another area of focus in the book that I think is really important. And it's difficult with this issue. It's, it's difficult to uh, contextualize because it's complicated, uh, but it's another area in terms of understanding the problem that is so important in my view, because there's, uh, I think, some big mythology we have around mental illness too. We, we often have a lot of blame placed on mental illness in our media and in our politics around mass shootings. 
But blaming mental illness as the cause of mass shootings is fundamentally wrong. It's not the reason that people go out and commit mass shootings in the vast majority of cases. And the FBI's research deepened the understanding of that by not only determining that there were a few cases, a fraction of cases of those 63 where mental illness was present, but even when it was present, it was not a primary cause in in the vast majority of cases. So that was one conclusion that I think was really important. Another that you're alluding to was the, the evidence in these cases that people around the perpetrators had some sense of what was coming, had been privy to warning signs and yet did not report those warning signs in any way. Uh, and that's a really important challenge for the field of threat assessment to bridge that gap in terms of cultural and community awareness of what the warning behaviors are and right. then getting people to uh, want to try to reach out for help. And that's difficult because it requires a level of understanding and awareness. It requires trust in law enforcement or in a behavioral threat assessment team. And um, there are other issues that play in too. You know, people may be afraid to speak out in terms of their relationship to a potential uh, perpetrator of violence. So it's it's a major issue that this research continued to shed light on that I think the field really needs to make headway on if it's going to continue to scale and become successful with preventing attacks. Well, I think you've done an excellent job of underscoring the importance of bystander reporting here. And could you just very quickly give us a, a, a summation of the Park Rose incident? Because it is a case where there was intervention that worked. So that was a high school case in Portland, Oregon, uh, several years ago, where a suicidal uh, senior in the high school uh, went into the to a classroom one day with a shotgun and was planning to kill himself and may or may not have attempted to kill others. It wasn't clear uh, whether he was intending to do that. There were some signs that that he was just interested in committing suicide publicly. But the research in the field also shows that that kind of performance of suicide in a public setting is also very dangerous. That often intersects with homicidal intentions. Uh, so that was a case where a peer reported a concern about the student and the school security staff was able to intervene dramatically at the final moment. Again, you know, if you think back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview with John Van Driel and the early intervention, this is not the ideal scenario. It was a heroic intervention that disrupted potentially lethal violence. A, a, a school coach came in and uh, wrestled the gun away. Um, and the gun happened to misfire when the the student tried to shoot it into his own torso. Um, so it was a very tragic case, even though the outcome was um, good, I guess, in the sense that that you you would say, you know, he wasn't hurt. Um, but I think to the point you're raising, if this peer had not told faculty that she was worried that this student right. was was going to commit violence, the outcome likely would have looked a lot different. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Mark Fullman, author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Well, let's talk about progress or lack thereof as far as the states are concerned. How many states have enacted legislation requiring public schools to re- to put together these uh, threat assessment programs would be one question. And the other is red flag laws. Uh, what are they and how many states have, have moved on those? 
Yeah, so the first question, it's an interesting one in terms of where threat assessment is required in public schools. There are a handful of states now that require it. Uh, it's hard to get an exact count because one of the things that's interesting about this field is it's very decentralized. Right. So there, there's no central reporting or standardized uh, policy for doing it. But it has it is a policy that has spread rapidly in the last few years, particularly after the Parkland mass shooting in Florida in, in 2018. Um, several states quickly uh, moved to mandate threat assessment in their public schools. Uh, red flag laws are another policy that has uh, proliferated in recent years. Uh, there are now 19 states and, and Washington, D.C. that have uh, some form of, of that policy, which um, in essence is a, is a civil process for potentially removing a firearm from a person temporarily who is deemed by a court to be dangerous either to themselves or to others. And you can see how this would be a, a useful tool in the setting of threat assessment, whereas historically uh, a threat case where uh, a team may become very concerned about a person imminently committing a violent attack might want to not only find out whether that person has access to a firearm, but be able to remove it. Historically, there weren't many legal tools with which to do that. And red flag laws are designed to address that. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, they've really grown um, in the last handful of years after California moved to implement one following the mass shooting in Santa Barbara in 2014. So does Idaho have a red flag law? I believe Idaho does not have one. Uh, there are many states in the country that have uh, whose whose leaders, both at the state and federal level, have pushed back against this policy and argued that it is anti constitutional. Um, who are skeptical of the uh, federal gun bill that passed recently that in part would fund this approach to prevention, um, and it really misunderstands what the policy is designed to do. And in fact, I think it's it's very telling when you see conservative Republican politicians denounce red flag laws because what they do is precisely what many of those politicians call for after major mass shootings, which is to keep guns out of the hands of people who are turning dangerous. Uh, this is a process to determine through a court to have a judge look at evidence and decide whether or not a person should have access to a firearm. And it's a civil procedure and it's temporary. So it's not criminalizing gun ownership in any way uh, by removing guns under that premise. Uh, let's talk about emulation behavior. And this takes us all the way back to the killing of John Lennon uh, by uh, John Chapman, I think was the guy's name. Mark um, Chapman. Mar yes. Yeah, Mark Chapman, yeah. Uh, tell us about uh, that in terms of what it set in motion for the future. Yeah, so what I refer to as emulation behavior in, in trigger points is another very interesting area uh, that I, I dug deep into for the book because it, it's something that has existed for decades but has also grown in the digital age with social media and, and the ways in which we've had sensational media attention on mass shootings uh, but it does trace back to the 1980s, where there was more of a focus in the early years of, of the field of threat assessment on political assassination and celebrity stalking. So I write about uh, several of those cases early in the book, including the murder of John Lennon in New York by, by Mark Chapman. And he was one of uh, dozens of perpetrators of, of assassinations that the... Uh, early threat assessment experts studied in part by going and talking to in prison. 
um, there, there's a, a forensic psychologist by the name of Robert Fine who uh, began collaborating with uh, agents at the U.S. Secret Service in the 1980s to try to study and understand assassins better. And so they started going around the country uh, and interviewing these perpetrators uh, and learning more about their mindset prior to the attack, uh, the behaviors and circumstances. They had conceptualized this idea of what they called pre-attack thinking and pre-attack behaviors. Uh, the early concept of, of that profiling of the behavioral process. And they learned a lot of interesting things from talking to these perpetrators um, about their life circumstances and, and the things that they were thinking and doing as they prepared to commit these assassinations. Uh, emulation was part of that. They were looking to each other for inspiration and they were wanting to imitate other assassins. And this, this phenomenon later continued to build around mass shootings. So in my research uh, on the issue over the past decade and for the book, I learned that there are a lot of cases where mass shooters are emulating their predecessors and they, they are seeking attention. They want notoriety for what they're going to do. Well, I think if I, if I could summarize your book in one statement, it would be know the signs and then report them. I mean, isn't that really where we are right now? First of all, we, we need more behavior assessment teams. But once they're in place, their success is almost completely dependent on knowing the signs and then getting bystander reporting, people who step up and will make a phone call and say something's not right here. Is that right? I think so. You know, your, your, your listeners will surely have noticed that we have not talked about in this interview the issue of gun regulations or access to guns, right. um, which, of course, is at the heart of the matter when you're talking about mass shootings. But to your point, I, I became very interested in the work of, of behavioral threat assessment as a subject and, and wrote a book about it because long ago I grew frustrated with the kind of circular debates we have over and over again about gun laws and guns in our country. It's an important debate and it's one that will go on. But I became very interested in the question of what more can we do to deal with this problem of mass shootings? Uh, because the fact is, we have a lot of guns in the United States, and in many places, they remain easy to get. So this is a problem that isn't going to go away. And yet there are other ways that we can come at it to try to solve it. And I think the work of this field, doing this kind of community-based prevention work, is potentially a very powerful additional policy tool that we can use to reduce mass shootings. And an essential part of that work is greater understanding, greater public understanding, greater community engagement, knowing the signs, understanding the true nature of this problem. I think part of it is really about demystifying it. We, we treat mass shooters as these evil monsters. We regard them as these evil monsters who are insane and just snap as if they attack impulsively. None of that is true, as I, as I write about extensively in the book. These are people who aren't crazy, in most cases, they're angry and desperate and often suicidal, and they have a lot of problems, but they are, in most cases, showing behavioral warning signs along the way. And with better awareness of that and better infrastructure in our communities to address those situations, I think we do have a better chance of reducing the problem. And the best place to get that awareness is a book called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. I cannot recommend it more strongly by Mark Fullman. Mark, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for being with us today at Reader's Corner. Pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me.
Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. <laughs>